Welcome everyone. I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development for the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana, and we're here today for Shreveport Bossier, my city, my community, my home. My guest today is very special. It's Bonnie Moore. So, Bonnie, thanks so much for making the time to be with us. You're more than welcome. Thank you. All right, Bonnie. Well, let's start here today, if we could. If I'm not mistaken, you've served as the director of the Department of Community Development for the city of Shreveport since 1995. Does that sound? No. No? Okay. No. Um, actually, I. Um started work for the city in 1995. Okay. I've been director for about 19 years now. Okay. Okay. And for the lay person who has no idea what the Department of Community Development is, can you can you start by defining its role for the city and then later we'll get into the specifics of some of your major projects and initiatives. Okay. Community development means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Um, Jeffrey, I say often that hardest part of my job is managing expectations, uh, particularly because our community faces uh, insurmountable challenges. Uh, the needs are great uh, and the needs are varied. Uh, we uh, struggle with pervasive poverty, uh, educational attainment, health care, uh, negative outcomes. We uh, struggle with uh, economic despair and a lot of those issues uh, have tremendous barriers that impede our people from living a wonderful quality of life. So at the Department of Community Development, our mandate, and I don't often say our, our mission or our goal, our mandate, uh, is to address those barriers that impede our citizens from living a wonderful quality of life. Uh, that may mean that we provide programs and uh, work on policies and do strategies and plans uh, that work toward uh, those issues, again, that uh, are barriers to our citizens. Uh, we uh, fund a number of different initiatives. We work really, really hard in our community. 93% of our funding comes from grants uh, or entitlement dollars, and uh, we have four entitlement programs. We have uh, the WIOA program, which is the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Grant, the Community Development Block Grant, Home Investment Partnership Program, and the Emergency Solutions Grant. All of the other grants, we have worked really, really hard to ensure that we have the resources uh, to just, just even make a little dent uh, in the needs in our community. Uh, I often say that we're resource deprived, but we would do everything in our effort to ensure that we work hard for the citizens of our community. Uh, the people are worth it, and our community is worth it. And so uh, we fund a number of different initiatives that address housing, homelessness, social uh, deprivation, all of those things, again, that impede our citizens from uh, living a good quality of life. And just to follow up a couple of things, one, um, you said I think 93% of your resources come through grants. What percent just approximately are federal versus state, just out of curiosity? Probably 80%. Okay. And then a Department of Community Development, is that a is that a Cato is that a is that a city Shreveport thing? Is that a is that a nationwide thing? Do do many cities have departments of community development? Well oh, absolutely. Um, I'm a member of the National uh, Community Development Association and it's probably over a thousand members and I'm proud to say I've been president of two years for two terms and so 
um, it's made community development uh, is the uh, fabric of our community where it comes to addressing uh, oppression and addressing the needs of our vulnerable citizens, to address poverty. Uh, I always speak that poverty is real in our communities, and, and if we don't address poverty, and if poverty is not a part of the conversation, uh, we'll have the communities that we have today. So let's, let's um, move on to talking about some of your major projects and initiatives. Um, there, there are a number of them, and we're going to take them kind of one at a time. So let's begin today with choice neighborhoods. What is, if you could just educate us, what is choice neighborhoods? Where is it located? And why is it an important development for our community? Jennifer, I started uh, probably in 2011. Uh, we were among 17 cities throughout the country that received a choice neighborhoods planning grant. And we spent about two years doing robust planning uh, throughout the Allendale and Ledbetter Heights neighborhoods and the west edge of downtown. Uh, we went door to door, we had focus groups, we, uh, we had individual conversations with people throughout the community to, to determine what the greatest needs were there. The boundaries for choice includes uh, the interstate, Hearn Avenue, Common, and uh, Ford Street. And so it's a pretty large area. We've concentrated our efforts, however, in a small area around Millennium Studios. And I'll share a little bit more about that with you in a few minutes. Um, when we did the uh, planning grant, it took us about two years. Um, we were approved in 2013. Our, grant, our planning grant was approved and our plan was approved. Uh, after that, we spent a couple of years amassing land, raising dollars. Uh, we were putting ourselves in a position to compete with New York City, Baltimore, uh, Chicago, San Francisco, New Orleans. Uh, we were putting ourselves in a very strategic position. We knew we couldn't raise $800 million like Chicago did, or $100 million uh, like another city did. So we had to really, really work real hard over the next five years to create an infrastructure that was competitive. And so we worked with the Housing Authority, uh, and I have to uh, acknowledge Bobby Collins, who I think is one of the greatest people in this city, and Shreveport's glad to have him. He was a great partner, Volunteers of America, um, and we worked with those agencies to create a really, really robust plan. Uh, we had to create a team that was skilled and a team that really had passion about our community to be able to compete as well. And so we were able to do that. So in 2018, uh, we were awarded a $24.2 million grant from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Again, we were competing with cities that, uh, very urban cities that had, uh, could leverage their dollars much better than we could. We were able to amass over $100 million for choice neighborhoods to be competitive in this grant. And again, I give uh, all accolades to the team that created this uh, for us. And so, Let me stop you one second. Mm -hmm. So when you say $24 million and then $100 million, explain the... Okay. In order to apply for this grant, you had to have literally uh, a 50 over and above what you were applied for, a 50% match. So the more match that you, you infused into your project, the more competitive you became. 
And so we were, we know we were at a, at a disadvantage, again, competing with these larger cities throughout the country. Uh, so we worked really, really hard with Louisiana Housing Corporation, our, our local entities, philanthropic organizations to amass over $100 million in match funding. Wow. And this is funding that goes directly into the project. Uh, it's not mon money that sometimes when people talk about leverage money, it's a lot of different money that uh, is dispersed uh, in other areas. This $100 million will go directly into Choice Neighborhoods. Uh, and so after doing that in 2018, we were notified that we were a finalist in the, um, in, in the endeavor. And uh, about a month later, I got a call from Washington saying, Bonnie, uh, you all have been successful. We are awarding you $24.2 uh, million. Uh, we applied for $30 million. The reason why we didn't get $30 million, they wanted all of our projects centrally located and contiguous. So we lost $6 million due to that. Um, and But we've made that $24.2 million work, and I think the community will, will be uh, excited about uh, what will happen in that community. And give me a, give me some specifics of what we can come to expect or what we will eventually see with Choice Neighborhoods. Well, we're centrally located, as, as you may be aware, around Millennium Studios. That's uh, common for and forward uh, in that area. We're only on about 13 acres of land. And on that land, we'll, we will build 322 units of mixed income housing. It's, in, it's very important for me to make, emphasize mixed in, income housing because what we don't want to do is concentrate poverty uh, like we did many years ago with all of the old public housing facilities. Uh, another thing we did not want to do is just create housing. It's not just good enough to house people. You have to provide the supportive services. You have to look at the built environment around where they're living, if there's crime, is there vacant abandoned property, if there are drugs. People cannot thrive in areas where the built environment is very negative. And so Choice Neighborhoods not only address the housing needs of, of, of our citizens, but it also address the service needs and the built environment by which they live. And so we're really proud of the 328 uh, units that we will be, we will be building. Uh, we've already completed 136 units. Uh, we will be doing a senior development, which will be 70 units. Uh, we also will be doing a mixed-use development, which will have retail under the bottom and housing on the top. Uh, we will all, we're also embracing uh, a healthcare facility as well as a child care learning lab. And so all of that will be centrally located, as well as uh, our what we call our neighborhood component, and that's our built environment around that people have to thrive. And so we will be doing what we call the Epic Center, and that's empowering people in careers, and we will be using portion of Millennium to do that. Uh, and that's why we, we purchased Millennium Studios. And so in the Epic Center, we'll have a state-of-the-art makerspace, uh, Shrack, will manage that maker space. We will have a workforce training center and a distribution center. And I'll talk about the distribution center a little more when I talk about MSK. Uh, but um, 
that will be state of the art. It will be in the, uh, in the center of the housing development where those individuals can benefit from workforce training. They can benefit from job creation such as welding and some of those other things. Uh, they, will, they will have the arts in front of them. Uh, they will have health care. They will have a child care center where they, when their children go to school, they have a place to put their, ch their child care. And I'll talk a little bit about more about that when I talk about Early Start. But we're excited about creating a comprehensive plan and program where people can not only grow and prosper, but, but thrive as well. We believe that it's extremely important to build and heal people. And so we've create, created, uh, and I don't, I don't like to use the word program, but we've pre created uh, an effort where people have the chance, if they want to, to change their lives. And are there people already living in the 100, however many yes, units? Yes, 136 units, yes. They're occupied today? Yes, they're occupied today. Okay, great. Okay, so next I'd like you to speak, which you started to, you mentioned a little bit, I'd like you to speak about MS Kick, which is the kitchen incubator. Uh, like Choice Neighborhoods, can you tell me what MS Kick is, where it's located, and why it's important for our community? Well, in 2016, we were ambitious, and we're very ambitious, and we applied for a, um, a grant. It's called an Action Activity Grant. And what HUD, HUD wanted to do, uh, rather than investing in a lot of planning and people get, uh, you know, they get fatigued from planning and they never see anything being done, uh, they wanted us to plan while doing it. And so they offered us the opportunity to apply for an action activity grant. Again, this is a very competitive grant. Uh, hundreds of cities across the country apply for the, this grant. They awarded two grants and one was Shreveport. Wow. So we were very, very, again, proud of our efforts. Um, we decided to do a kitchen incubator. And the reason why we decided that when we were doing our planning, we met so many people that talked about the cuisine in the area back in the day. They always said back in the day. Uh, we could go to Pete Harris, we could go here, we could go there. And uh, that resonated with us. We also, while we were going through the canvassing the community, we saw people selling things out of their cars. We saw people doing catering in their kitchens at their homes. And we wanted to create uh, a, a, a structure where people could do things legally, uh, safely, uh, they can also become budding entrepreneurs in the culinary in industry. And so we thought about a kitchen incubator, that there was no uh, industrial kitchen here where people could go and learn and have technical assistance and training. So the kitchen, MS Kick is what we call it, Mountain Street Kitchen Incubator. And uh, this is at the old Millennium Studios? Is no, that where, okay. No, it is located on Milam Street. Okay. Uh, right in front of Oakland Cemetery. Okay. And so it's a 10,000 square feet multi-purpose building that have two components. They have the incubator part where, again, budding entrepreneurs can come in and this is their segue into the business industry. Uh, and they also have a community kitchen. Uh, with both of those, you can get training, you can get technical assistance. Uh, we're working on, on, on a wellness and health component for that, a, 
coffee cafe, some other things, a community uh, cafe where people can come in, also where residents can come in and, or, or the public and, and do uh, different types of trainings. And so we expect this uh, to be a very positive infusion into our community. We already see the results. Currently, there are about 12 uh, tenants there operating a very diverse group. We're really proud of that as well. Uh, it is being highly used by these um, uh, these tenants. Uh, if you not, have not been there and taste some of the different kinds of food, I encourage you encourage you to, Jeffrey. The food is absolutely wonderful. Uh, we just had a, a professional day there the other day. The atmosphere is great. The parking is great. The food's great. Uh, the experience is great. And so I would encourage you to just kind of stop by. Yeah, I'd love to. Who Who's managing MS Kick? Or Actually, who? thank you for that. It's Southern University. They're doing okay. a superb job with that. Uh, not only um, are they uh, have the skill set, uh, but they also have the passion for the work. Uh, you know, we're using a lot of their programs, uh, their technical assistance programs and others uh, that they're imparting into this uh, endeavor. Uh, but uh, they have done a great job. They're our major partner in the MSK. And how does one, if one wants to participate, or, or I, uh, yeah, if one wants to participate in MSK, what's the best way to engage with? Um, Monique Aman is the... Uh, executive director there and I don't have her number but I can give you Southern's number and that's area code 318-670-6000. Okay great yeah I need to get over there. Yeah um, it's wonderful it's a wonderful venue uh, for meetings for uh, just if you just want to go there and have a gathering for your staff for your family uh, it's very community minded very community driven I would recommend that uh, anyone that want to use that facility that they call uh, and one more time, where is it located on Milam? Uh, it's right in front of the kitchen incubator. I mean, uh, the kitchen incubator is located right in front of Oakland Cemetery. Okay. The, the, the address slips uh, my memory right now. No problem. But it's right a uh, phone store away from the municipal auditorium. Okay. Uh, so it's right in that area. Great. Okay, so I have three other projects and initiatives I'd like to cover with you today. For each of these, just like these others, can you tell me what they are, where they're located, and why they're important for our community? So let's begin with the Financial Empowerment Center. Well, I, I remember back in 2016 when I was approached about financial literacy and financial empowerment, and I, 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 can, I can very vividly remember saying to myself, these things are important, but I got bigger fish to fry. And I have poverty, I have crime, I have so social deprivation, I have all of these things. Uh, we were first and last in almost every social ill. And um, I said, I, you know, it's important, but I, I don't know that this is something the city should take the lead on. And so I was introduced to the City for Financial Empowerment, and, um, and they convinced me that not only is financial empowerment important, but it's necessary. Uh, and they convinced me that it was a public service, that government should be involved in this, uh, and that it is an anti-poverty strategy, and also that it is the needle that sews all of these programs together. Because even if you gave somebody a job, 
even if they went to college and got an education, if they can't figure out their finances, then they're going to be, uh, they're not going to be good corporate citizens. And so they really convinced me of that in the work that they did all across this country. Uh, they had a first set of core hearts that it was about 13 of them, and they had staggering results in debt and income and savings and uh, people coming out of poverty. And I was so taken aback by that until I started working on uh, our first grant from them, which was for new mayors, and that was Mira Holly Tyler. And, um, and for, it was actually first generation mayors. And I, uh, we received a small grant to do planning and development. And through that work, I found out how important it was to be empowered to manage your own finances and all of those things, how to manage debt and how to save and how important that was into changing your lives, uh, giving people the capacity to change their own lives. I realized that that was so important in our work and that it was, again, a municipal responsibility. And so uh, we worked for a few years with them on a, a number of different initiatives. Shreveport became one of New York's favorite uh, as we worked through that. And um, we were able to secure a grant to open up a financial empowerment center. Uh, the United Way is our nonprofit provider. The city actually owns the program, but the United Way is our nonprofit, and we could not have asked for a better nonprofit. Provider, and we could not have asked for a better leader in Rashida Dawson. Uh, they have, during COVID, we opened up during COVID. And where is it, by the way? Uh, 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 it's at, I know that one, 820 Jordan. Okay. <laughs> 820 Jordan Street. Uh, and um, we opened up during COVID, uh, I'm sorry, COVID. And during that period, uh, we were, you know, we were devastated. The country was devastated. This was the best time for the Financial Empowerment Center. Um, our numbers were staggering. Our performance was great. Rashida and her team did an outstanding job during COVID. Not only did they meet their performance objectives, they exceeded their performance objectives in the first year they were open and during COVID. Um, I just learned last week that Shreveport is number one in, in their numbers, and that's competing again with New York and Chicago and Baltimore. But let me say also, I've learned so much from those cities on how to do this and how to do it right. I've learned from their mistakes and I've learned from their successes. Uh, but again, we're, we're extremely uh, proud of the fact that we're changing lives. Uh, we also have a Housing Stability Council uh, counselor there. As you remember, uh, during COVID, we were uh, devastated with people being evicted, with uh, rental challenges and all of that. So we thought that we needed somebody to help stabilize uh, that during that uh, very difficult time, but also ongoing. This is an ongoing problem. Uh, people are paying more than 30% of their income on rent. Uh, and so we really need the housing council. So we uh, hired a housing counselor for the Financial Empowerment Center, which added more uh, to their efforts. Uh, and so we're really, really glad of the performance and the outcome because financial empowerment is so important for the citizens of our community. And talk to me a little bit about the nuts and bolts of financial empowerment. Like, what, how exactly does the service work and what can I expect if I, if I show up at 820 Jordan? Sure. First of all, you need to make an appointment with the, with the counselors there and just call United Way. Um, and so 
when you get there, they'll assign you to a professional counselor uh, that will uh, provide intense counseling for you, intense financial counseling. It won't be where you walk into uh, somewhere and they tell you uh, that you need to do this and you need to do that. They will hold your hand. They will walk you through it. They will help you. Uh, and I this mean, is at no cost? At no cost. Absolutely no cost uh, to the public. Uh, no matter what your uh, age, what your background is, what your uh, social economic background is, it is free to the public, to the general public. I remember sending... Um, a lady and her uh, disabled daughter there. Uh, I'd been working with them for almost a year uh, and I call myself the social service director for the city and so um, I'd been working with them for about a year. Every three months they were evicted. Every three months. I'd find them in a place uh, and three months later they were evicted. Uh, I sent them to the, I finally gave up and I said, before I can help you again, you must go to the Financial Empowerment Center. You must get help. Uh, and so they did. Uh, it took them several times to go, but they did. Uh, after they went there, um, I think it may have been uh, Jocelyn Harris who helped them, I'm not sure, but it was one of the great counselors that they had there. Uh, Jocelyn held their hands uh, for weeks and months. Uh, and this may not sound great to a lot of people, but they've been in that apartment six months now. And that is uh, uh, pretty awesome. I think they're on the road to the right path. They had enough money uh, to maintain. Did they have enough money to thrive? Absolutely not. But they had enough money to maintain. Today they're maintaining, only because they went to the Financial Empowerment Center. They picked up that phone, they made an appointment, they sat through the, the five, six sessions, however many sessions it needs to get you to where you are. Uh, they'll do phone sessions, they'll do in-person sessions, they'll do Zoom sessions. Whatever you need to get where you are, they're willing to do it. And they're basically changing your relationship to money and, and, and understanding your economic situation and, and teaching you how to how to manage what you, what you have. Absolutely, and we're doing uh, also estate planning. You know, that's uh, uh, something that many people don't even think about until they get older. Uh, and so we're doing estate planning. Again, we have the housing stability counselor. We have the counselors that work with you on your debt, your savings, uh, in improving your quality of life. Uh, we have those counselors as well. Great. Mm -hmm. All right, so next, let's move. And as everyone can tell, uh, Bonnie is a, a very busy person um, and, and, and extremely important to this community. So next, can you tell me about the War Room Initiative? Well, the War Room Initiative came about for a number of reasons. Um, it's all about housing, but I will, I will say to you, Jeffrey, that uh, you just can't have housing. You have to have housing and services. Uh, and while we're creating decent, safe, and sanitary, affordable housing people, we can't forget about the services that they need as well. So when I was thinking about the war room, I had just left a number of meetings where people were just angry. And people had so much passion about their communities, and the people were hurting. And I said, how do I take this and harness it in a positive way? where we could all work together to change our community. And so I thought about the war room. 
as a name that, you know, we're not fighting against each other. We're fighting for the poor, the disadvantaged, and the vulnerable in our community. And how can we all get together and fight for our communities? And I thought about doing it around housing because this is the first time in many, many years that we've had uh, some housing dollars that we can really deploy into our community in a meaningful way. And so we called a meeting back in December uh, of uh, 21, and we called it the War Room. And we said to them, we have rules, but we want you to tell us with your passion, with your anger, how do you think we should use these dollars in a positive way? Uh, but we had to go through some education with them. We had to tell them that, you know, when you were using federal money, it comes with restrictions, it comes with requirements. Uh, we had even we had a debate uh, facilitator there. We had people there telling them about all the tremendous opportunities that are out there. Let me just stop you one second. Them is tell me just. Uh, we had a, a group of nonprofits and individuals that came okay. and for profit. Okay. That came to the war room. It's probably about uh, seventy entities and individuals okay. that came to that particular meeting. Uh, probably overall about a hundred and twenty persons uh, gave input as it related to housing and how we should spend those dollars. And we used those spending those dollars as a care to get people to come. Uh, and so we could have this conversation. The conversation was a real conversation about what are the real true issues in this community uh, and how can we better together uh, affect change. And so uh, we had, again, uh, people in uh, various industries to come in and talk about uh, what this meant, what the need, true needs are, that 50% uh, of our, uh, our citizens are uh, pay more than 30% of their income on housing. And this is all socioeconomic uh, backgrounds. Uh, and so how do we change that? People who are living in deplorable housing, and you can, you can show your picture now, Jeffrey. It's <laughs> me. Yeah. People are actually living in deplorable housing. That that house at the top um, is a, a, a garage apartment. The lady that lived there was a senior citizen. Her house next door had been demolished. And she moved next door to her garage apartment, which had no electric, no plumbing. When I first came to the city, on my first day as director, she walked into my office. She had a snow white uniform on. And she's, all she asked me was for a tarp. And I, I, I get really emotional when I talk about this. She only wanted a tarp to keep the rain out of her house. That's all she wanted. She didn't want anything else from us. And so I sent inspectors out, and that's what they brought back to me. I'm very naive at this point. I don't really understand the tremendous needs that are out there at this point. And when they brought that picture back to me, I keep that picture on my desk to keep me grounded, to keep me true to my mission. <clears throat> she used a water hose from our next door neighbors to take a bath and to drink water. And so when we went out there, I said, nobody in the United States of America, when we're one of the greatest countries in this world, should be living like this. 
But little did I know, Jeffrey, that there are many who we call Miss Lucy. There are many Miss Lucy's out there. I had a veteran who had served this country, who had retired from the military, that was boarding his house up when he left and unboarding it when he came because his house was in such terrible condition and he was trying to save the little things that he had left. I, when I came into this office as well, I was, I was concerned about change orders. I said, well, y'all just doing too many change orders. I said, this doesn't make sense. So the inspector said to me, said, I want you to go to a house with me. I went to the house. I literally almost fell to the floor when I got in the house. The inspector went and showed me an open wire, and when he pulled the wire on the wall, literally caved in. This was a senior citizen who had cancer. These are the things that we see each and every day, the deplorable conditions of housing in our community. Then we hear about the people that are living in housing, that have rats and mold and all of those things. And then, of course, we're cost burden, as I shared earlier. We're just trying to pay our rent every month or pay our house note uh, because of the conditions in our community. And I challenge our, our citizens to go to some of these communities and see how people actually live. I never forget getting lost in one area of town. And I ended up where a mobile home was and there was a roof that had gone all the way through this mobile home. And I saw someone walk out of that, out of that mobile home. These are the conditions that we experience in our community. And I say to everyone that no one should accept these conditions. No one should accept these conditions in our communities. But it's massive. And we need everybody working together. We need resources. We need poverty to be a part of the conversation. We need housing to be a part of the conversation. When we talk about changing our community, the problems in our community, economic opportunity in our community, we need these things to be a part of the conversation and part of the equation. And so uh, the war room kind of derived, derived out of that. And so after uh, we met that first meeting, uh, we spent our time uh, looking at the data from that meeting, looking at what people said uh, and what people said they wanted. And uh, so uh, recently, probably about two months ago, uh, we issued an RFP. Uh, when we issued the RFP based upon all of those things, we, we really found out that people really didn't understand these programs. And so we spent probably, uh, we had about five meetings just talking to people about the rules, the regulations, what are the needs out there, um, how to best use these dollars. And so uh, that was probably about 30 organizations and only about 15 applied for the RFP. Uh, we've been going through the RFP over the last couple of months. We do a threshold review. We really look at uh, we have somebody to underwrite it for us. Uh, we really look at what really makes sense. Uh, how, do, how do we take a little money and do a lot of things with it? And, uh, and so we've been, uh, we should be in the next couple of week, weeks identifying uh, who the recipients are of those dollars. Uh, we have everything from single family home ownership to rental, uh, to lease purchase, uh, to tiny homes and, and, and uh, container homes. 
homes. So we have all kinds of things and we encourage innovation. We encourage uh, to people to think out of the box and we encourage people to think about uh, what do your community really needs that will make sense and that can make your community grow. And this is, the, this is a start for you. Uh, and so we'll take whoever we select and we will work with them with capacity building, with training, helping them get other resources uh, if, if necessary. And then our next uh, RFP will be probably, uh, we were looking for the end of November. Uh, it may either be December or the first of next year before we issue that proposal. And what we're trying to do is address housing in an intentional, deliberate way where although we don't have the money that Dallas and New Orleans and others have, but we can also make a, a, a difference in our community. Will this will it just be two two RPs or two phases, or will there be oh, additional no, we ones? Get dollars. Okay. Uh, sometimes we don't do annual RFPs, but again, we don't get the money that other communities get, so we may do um, RFPs every two years uh, just to ensure that we have sufficient funding uh, to be able to support uh, the number of. Uh, RPs that we get returned to us. Great. I have a couple more questions. Um, the next project or initiative I want you to um, talk about is the Early Start Initiative, if you could. Uh, the Early Start Initiative, I, I, I think I've worked on a lot of different things, many, 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 many programs. In 2021, um, we had a 40% shortage in staff. We had COVID money, CARES Act money, special fund money, um, but the staff was able to do a lot of things. We funded probably 70 different organizations doing a wide variety of things. But I think what I'm especially proud of is the Early Start Initiative. Um, working with the Community Foundation, the Cattle Parish School Board, uh, this was actually a dream of Mayor Perkins, and uh, he, he brought the idea to us of uh, provide, doing an Early Start initiative. Uh, and we will, we'll do almost anything you tell us to do, but we need money to do it. <laughs> so he, was, he raised the money, or actually the city council and, and the administration gave us $3 million uh, to uh, start an Early Start initiative. And although one component of it I'll talk about today, uh, it is gonna be pretty much two-pronged. Uh, we haven't decided how we're going to spend uh, uh, the other dollars, uh, but we do recognize there's a need for training, uh, for training child care workers. Also, uh, we hear things like uh, that the, the teachers are underpaid, uh, therefore they're not able to keep skilled uh, teachers. Uh, the teachers are overworked at these child care centers. So we're looking at something like that in the second phase of this. But in the first phase, um, uh, the Community Foundation said very loud uh, in, in their early childhood initiative that um, children were going to school and they were not kindergarten ready. And as you know, as we struggle with uh, good education outcomes here, it is really important that we can get kids ready to go to school. Um, and so uh, we looked at the need for childcare in this community and it was tremendous. Uh, and uh, the Community Foundation gave us all kinds of data on um, why this was important. 30% of our children live in poverty. Um, many of our single parents and mothers, or even two-parent families, uh, lack decent, affordable childcare. 
And so uh, Mayor Perkins had heard this at the Community Foundation Initiative. He'd heard it at a conference and, um, where they were doing great things with early childhood uh, throughout the uh, country. And he wanted to bring that to Shreveport. And so we were excited about it because we, we understood and understand the problem as it relates to early development. And so um, we, the mayor, put up $3 million uh, for the Early Start Initiative. Uh, again, the mayor and the city council. We're working with Kettle Parish's Smart Start Network uh, to uh, bring uh, up to almost 600 children affordable, decent, child care. Uh, you have to be uh, zero to three uh, in order to enroll in this child care program. Uh, there is no prohibition against a family having multiple children. In there we wanted the children to go to the same child care center. Uh, we wanted the families to stay intact. Uh, then uh, we work with three-tier child care centers. Again, we want the best child care for, for, for our children. Uh, and these are child care centers that are approved by the state. Uh, and uh, we're also working with the state uh, on uh, their initiative to match our, our uh, $3 million. Uh, you also have to be a resident of Shreveport. Now, Cattle Parish uh, uh, will work with you throughout the parish, but our dollars are specific to Shreveport. Uh, and you have to be at least 300% of the poverty level. And I'll share a little bit about that to you, for you, Jeffrey. We wanted 300% of the poverty level because we wanted to address those families that are really falling through the cracks. There's CCAP funding for those that are 200% of the poverty level. People like uh, many of us can afford to send our children to child care centers, but there's this Alice group that are falling through the cracks. They are barely over the poverty level. They don't, they're the working, I call them the working poor. Uh, and they don't, can't get any benefits, they can't get anything. So we chose 300% of the poverty level so that those people can have access as well to affordable child care. Uh, so if you're a family of four, you can make up to $84,000. If you're a family of nine, you can make up to $154,000. That's been unprecedented. In our community and so we're really really proud to bring affordable child care to this community people can um, you have to either I do want to emphasize this too you have to either be working or looking for work in order to participate in our program because we want to encourage people again to be empowered to to control their own lives and what was uh, you mentioned uh, sorry um, something like Speed or some other program, Caddo, that you were in partnership with? Uh, the Caddo Smart Start Initiative. And what is that exactly? Cause well, I it's don't... their uh, child care, early child care oh, it's the same. assistance okay. program. Okay. Uh, they're working with the state. The state matches the dollars. Um, uh, they service Caddo Parish. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's already... It's already in play. In fact, you can apply for our program today, but you have to apply through Cattle Parish. Okay, and so this will ultimately give how many kids, you said? For our program, over 600. Uh, Cattle Parish has already served, uh, and Community Foundation, much more. And that'll be child care for these families and these kids at no cost? Well, what we're doing is uh, no cost, or we're matching the CCAP dollars from the state. Okay, great. 
All right, so um, we're going to move a little out of the specifics of the initiatives and projects. And I just, as someone who sees so much more than most of us, uh, I want to take a second and talk to you just about our community as a whole. Um, so as, as you look out at everything in our community, my, my question is simply, what makes you optimistic about the future of this community, particularly given that you struggle um, with things that most of us uh, don't even face ever, uh, and you, you're in the trenches with it daily. So um, just kind of looking around, what makes you hopeful uh, moving forward? First and foremost, Shreveport is a great city. Um, we're positioned in a way that we could really create potential and opportunity for our community. And so although we're faced again with insurmountable challenges, I see those challenges as opportunities. Uh, we can take adjudicated property and do so much with. Uh, we can uh, create better commerce and, and better opportunities for our small businesses. There's a lot that we can do in our community. Uh, and so I don't want people to think about the negative things. I think about the positive. We have a wonderful transportation center. We have wonderful health care here. Uh, we have wonderful philanthropic givers. We have uh, great volunteers and great people, great nonprofits. Uh, I work with people every day that want to do something for our community our city. We just got to figure the best way to do that and how to do that and, and how to do that in a way where everybody, everybody benefits from that. I have this saying that um, that we, love has no cost and Shreveport is home. Whether you live in New York, whether you live in Dallas and you were, and you were born and raised here, Shreveport is home. And it is a place where we should take everything we have and invest in it. But we got to create the infrastructure for people to invest. If we don't create the infrastructure for people to invest, people invest how they know how to invest. Uh, and that's why we have some of the things that we have today. Um, I also believe that um, the benefits of our community should also accrue to those of lesser means. Meaning that if we build a state-of-the-art facility that everybody should benefit from that state-of-the-art facility. Uh, if we bought commerce into this community, everybody should benefit from that commerce. That is the only way that we're going to grow in this community. Um, when I started this work, there were what we call 13 targeted neighborhoods. And targeted neighborhoods uh, is where 51% of the people in that community live below the poverty level. It was 13. Then it moved to 16. Now today we're saying that we have 19, although I can say to you we have at least 24. 10 years ago or more, I predicted that Highland is going to become a low-income neighborhood because we did not create the infrastructure to stop Highland from bleeding. And so if we don't create that infrastructure, if we don't work together to save the rich culture that we have here, we have a rich culture, then we're gonna have more Highlands 
and more Allendales and more MLKs. We're going to have those areas. But those areas deserve the same attention that we give other areas in this community. And we, when we don't give them that attention, that's when they's gonna, this donut is going to continue to bleed out. And our community is, is, is going to suffer. And so it doesn't cost anything to work together. It doesn't cost anything to love. And it never should be a burden to serve. Well, Bonnie, I appreciate you and um, your career service. You're an incredible example to anyone that aspires to a life of service. And uh, you kind of fly under the radar, but um, anyone who takes five minutes to look at the work you're doing uh, will be just as inspired and impressed as I've been. So I, I thank you, and I know you don't have a lot of time for taking the time to share a little of your work with everyone. Jeffrey, uh, for me, it's a ministry, uh, and uh, it has to be to uh, work in this industry. And I say to everybody, do your best in your season, because you only have that season to do it in. Well, you are. Thank you so much. Absolutely.